Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. For this word today, Lord, this is the moment where you speak And I'm asking you to allow us to hear. You take this jar of clay and speak through it. Speak through it words of life. Speak through it words that cause us to leave here and be changed. That as we lean into you, Lord, we find out what you have in store for us today. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen and amen. Many of you may know this story. I've told it before. Some may have not heard it. Many, many years ago in 2006, I was uh, 21 years old. I was just uh, about to get married, and uh, I was playing in intramural sports at Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee. And uh, in a mad matchup one night about 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, we were playing intramural football, and my team was down about six points with about a minute 19 left. They kicked the ball off to us, and I ended up snapping the ball. We did this hook and ladder, and I ran all the way down the field, and I got about 60, 70 yards down the field, and I met, tried to make a cut, and I landed on my left side, and all of a sudden, I couldn't breathe. <laughs> and then not breathing, I got back up, and the team was like, hurry, 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 you know? And so I snapped the ball, ended up catching the, the game-winning touchdown. It was on ESPN. It was amazing. But um, at the end of the night, I went to bed, and in the middle of the night, I, I, I heard in my chest what sounded like a plastic uh, grocery bag being blown in and, and deflating, inflating and deflating. And I went to school the next day. I was setting an exam in the vest building at Lee University, and my left arm went completely numb, and I started experiencing pain that was really, really unbearable. I mean, it was, it was really, really bad. So I walked up to the professor, and I said, uh, if I'm about to pass out, I just want you to know I'm having a heart attack, all right? So I'm going to I'm need to let you know that. And he said, that's okay. You can leave class. You know, no problem, right? Didn't, didn't call anybody. Didn't watch up. Didn't protect, you know. So I walked down the stairs. I go to a hospital that I would have never gone to except that I was having uh, chest pain. So I would have normally driven to Chattanooga. And uh, I went in there, and they did an x-ray, and they immediately found that I had a spontaneous pneumothorax. My left lung had, had deflated. It had collapsed in the left side of my chest cavity wall. And so uh, the next morning, uh, uh, I mean, I've got radiating pain out of my left side. I mean, it's just killing me. So I'm in this pain, and so I go into the, a little kind of miniature, miniature surgery. They puncture my chest cavity, and they go in and put a tube and the chest cavity wall to try to extract air. They put me to a vacuum, and I come out of surgery, and I'm in really, really bad pain because it's all, you know, the anesthesia, the local anesthesia was wearing off, and I looked at the nurse and said, hey, uh, do you have anything for me? She didn't give me an IV. She gave me a Percocet. Now, no offense, but Percocet ain't going to work. You understand what I'm saying? Percocet takes about 30 minutes to work, and I told the ma'am, I said, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to make it. And about the next few moments, my head, my eyes roll back in my head, and I'm gone. I pass out. The pain is is too high. So they start giving me a little bit stronger pain medicine. They give me Demerol. But to be honest with you, that, uh, that would only help me cope with my pain for a little bit. And I would, I would get better for a little while and maybe for a few hours only for the pain to resume again. So I was in this, for a four-day period, this up and down scenario where victory and defeat and pain and deliverance. And I was trying to do the best I could. But after three days... I couldn't take it anymore. If you ever been to this place in life, I, I mean, I could not take it any 
more. It was too much to bear. So my dad got on the phone and, and called a hospitalist down at Memorial Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and told him my problems, said all the different type of pain I was experiencing, what the x-ray had shown, and, and, uh, and said, you know, but they're just giving him Demerol to, to cope. But how many of y'all know I was tired of coping, right? And so he talks to the thoracic surgeon down there, and, uh, and, uh, and says, you know, well, Craig's just really wanting deliverance. He's wanting something to move forward. And the hospital here says he's going to stay another few days through the weekend. And so he said, describe to me what's going on. So he gives him this whole thing, and he breaks it all the way down. They're giving me all these medicines. And he said, well, uh, the reason he's not having any relief is because they're treating the wrong thing. That's what he told my dad on the phone. He said, what? He said, what they're doing is not getting to the root of what's wrong. The root of what's wrong is that the lung has a hole in it. And until that lung is clipped off and that lung begins to adhere to the side of the chest cavity, he's not going to have a reinflated lung. And so I get in this ambulance. I go down to Chattanooga. I get to Chattanooga. I meet with the doctor. I talk with him. He said, uh, he said they're, they're helping you manage your symptoms without addressing your cause. He said, tomorrow morning, we're going to have surgery, and I'm going to go in, we're going to deal with it, we're going to clip off the lung and, and cause that lung to adhere to the side of your chest wall so that it will not fall anymore. And how many of y'all know that in 12 hours, in 12 hours from the time I get to that hospital, what was killing me for almost five days, okay, what was killing me for five days, and uh, all of a sudden through uh, a doctor who, who really understood where I was coming from, who really understood what was going on in my life, what I was going through, and he prescribed what was really needed for what was really wrong. And I went from a person in major pain to a person being able to be dismissed from the hospital. I found that's what most people do in life. Today, there's a lot of pain. And it comes in all shapes, it comes in all sizes, all different forms that so many people of God, so many of God's people are going through and they're doing their best to cope. They're doing their, their best to try to get medicine. They're doing their best to try to make topical analgesics of whatever it is, symptoms or problems or difficulties they're facing. They're, they're trying a little bit of this, they're trying a little bit of that, hoping that even if they can't fix the problem, they'll be able to manage it better. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul gives for us in one verse the most comprehensive statement of what's wrong on planet earth. One verse, the most comprehensive statement, no matter how it's showing up in your life, no matter how it's showing up in your world, he wants you to understand this issue so you can understand the cure. Because if you don't understand the problem, you'll never understand the cure for whatever the complications are that you're battling with. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in, he said, the heavenly places. Paul is coming to a church that is steeped in a pagan city with pagan deities, uh, the temple of Diana being the greatest, in a field and surrounded by a pagan culture, filled with magic and filled with secular thinking and secular understanding. And, and he's saying to them that what you see is not really what's wrong. Can I just tell you, if you've been on social media this week after the election, what you see is not what's really wrong. What you see on the news is not what's really wrong in our nation. This is what 
Paul begins to tell the church at Ephesus. He said, your battle is not with flesh and blood. That's the physical realm. Your battle, he said, is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces in of darkness in the heavenly places. And so if you just study this passage, what Paul does, let's go to English class for a minute. He gives us a thesis. Before you start any essay, you give a thesis. He's going to give a thesis over the next eight verses, and it's very, very clear in this passage. This is the cure or key to the cure of whatever is plaguing you in life, whatever's plaguing you in your situation, and the thesis is very simple. Here it is. Everything visible and physical is preceded by something that is invisible and spiritual. We can say it this way, that everything that I see, everything that is physical and is visible to my eyes is always preceded by something invisible and spiritual. Therefore, if you want to correct the visible and physical, you must correctly identify the invisible and spiritual. Because if you don't correctly identify the invisible and spiritual, you'll wrongly treat the physical and visible. This is, what, this is how Paul starts our message today. This is what he begins to declare to the church that at Ephesus. In other words, if the rulers of this darkness, that's Satan and his demons, can keep us focused on flesh and blood, political figures, leaders around us, people that we actually see, if those spiritual forces so confuse us and deceive us to get us focused on flesh and blood, those things that our five senses can partake of so that we miss what we cannot see because we're illegitimately preoccupied with the things we do see, then the things we do see will keep us from the things we don't see so that the things we don't see cannot overrule the things we do see that's controlling what we're going through in our life right now. So it's looking beyond what we physically see, looking beyond what we touch with our five senses. He says the battle is not in the physical realm. The battle's not in what we see. So let me unpack this just for a few moments as Paul does And he wants you to know the approach, or this approach, and this is an approach to life, by the way. This is not a a single moment. This is an approach to life. He wants you to know this approach to life stems stems from a particular location. I want to give you that location. He calls it heavenly places. Heavenly places. Heavenly places is a euphemism for spiritual realm. So you could put, and I did in your card, heavenly places equal sign spiritual realm. Realm. You say, Craig, where do you get that? Well, look what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. He says that very clearly in Ephesians 1 and 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 verse 20, look what he says. He says, which he brought about in Christ God when he raised him from the dead and seated he, Christ, at the right hand in the heavenly places. Chapter 2 and verse 6, look what he says. A same location and raised us up together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3 verse 10, he says, the church of Jesus Christ is made known. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. In chapter 6 verse 12, he says, our flesh and blood is not our real battle, but we are battling demonic forces in the heavenly places places, you would get the impression from reading Ephesians that all the action in Pauline theology is in the heavenly places because that's exactly where the action stems from. It is in heavenly places. And considering the thesis of this passage that everything that is visible and everything that is uh, physical is preceded by that which is invisible and spiritual, we'll realize very quickly, yes, it all comes from heavenly places. But 
to do this, Paul says there's got to be an orientation. I'm going to give you an orientation. So in verse 10, look what he says. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord, Rachel. You just said that in your prayer three times. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Three times in this passage, he will use the phrase, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. Translation, don't move, don't move, don't move. To stand firm is to hold your ground. I got a question for you. Why would Paul tell you to hold your ground when he's about to tell you you're in a battle? That makes no sense. If you're in a battle, why would you hold your ground? Well, that, my friends, is because of a principle that many Christians either don't know or they soon forget. And that's this principle. That you and I, as believers, are not fighting for victory. You are fighting from victory. You're not asked to move forward. You're asked to stand your ground. You're asked to hold your place. And see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day he rose from the dead, the spiritual realm was brought under his authority, and Jesus is in charge now. Jesus is in control now. And one of the reasons that the enemy beats us is we no longer stand firm. We start moving. We start moving away from the victory that's in Jesus Christ. We start moving away from that which Jesus has already procured on our behalf. See, when you and I, when we lose sight of the cross, and we lose sight of what was accomplished by the resurrection, when the cross and resurrection, like in our culture, becomes a 2,000-year-old memory rather than a current event today, you've now lost connection with the only thing that can bring you victory in the battles you face. You've lost connection with the very power source itself. And so he says the only thing that can bring you victory in the heavenly places is the cross. And when you get victory in the heavenly places, then you begin to experience that victory in the earthly places. You begin to experience that victory in the situations you and I face. For far too many Christians, the cross of Jesus Christ has become a historical event with no contemporary reality. But God wants you to understand today, to stand firm in the reality and the strength, not of your might, to stand firm in the reality and strength of his might. Be strong in the might of the Lord, he says. Stand firm in the victory that Jesus Christ already procured on your behalf. See, if you got a gun on me, you got a pistol on me, you walk up to me and you put a gun in the back of my lower back and you got firepower in that gun, you can point that gun at me and control me any way you want to. You put that gun up next to my head, you put that gun on my neck, you put that gun on my chest, you can tell me stand up, shut up, turn around, jump up and down. Lay down on the floor, do push-up. You can have me do whatever. Why? Because you have authority in your hand. You have a firepower in your hand. But listen, if I ever discover that inside that pistol you got blanks, if I ever discover it's a toy pistol and not a real pistol, all the rules of the situation or hold-up has changed altogether. If I ever discover, follow me, that what you're touting to be, come on, Satan, is not what you really are. If I ever discover that what you're touting or pretending like you have authority over and you have strength over is not what you really are, that the power's not really there, that the power's actually inside of me, it changes your authority over me. I got good news for you. Colossians 2 and 15 says this enemy, our devil, he literally, the scripture says, has been defeated. When Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, he didn't just beat him. He made a public display of 
of them. Why? He made a he made a parade rally. Why? Because you don't have a parade rally till you got victory to the highest degree. He triumphed over Satan and his authorities through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a victory parade. You hold a parade because there's a victory. It's already been accomplished. And listen, you and I in our lives, we are living in a hellish world. We know that from a heavenly perspective. We are at a place in our lives where therefore you can only be defeated by deception. You can no longer be defeated by power. No believer can be defeated by power anymore. The only way you can lose is if you get tricked into thinking that you haven't already procured and secured the victory by deception. By deception. You must be tricked into defeat because the enemy's already been defeated. I, uh, you guys know I'm a sports fan. I, I love two universities, Tennessee, Duke. Both of them won yesterday, Tennessee football. We got a Georgia fan in there over my beloved friend, Pastor Chad's Kentucky team. But nonetheless, Duke won last night. Now, again, not, not, nothing to write home about Grand Canyon. We won like 96 to 48 the night before, and then we played again last night like 98-52. But I didn't, have the, uh, I didn't have the ACC network at the hospital. But I have an ESPN app. And uh, there's many times, you know, where ACC plays on Wednesday nights, which is normally a church night, has been in my past, and Sunday nights, which has been a church night. So there was many times where I had to carry the cross during about December through, through March. Okay? And I wasn't able to watch the Duke games because I was at church, you know, just doing things that Christians do. They love Jesus and stuff. And so I'm, I'm worshiping right now. I'm just kidding. But, but there were many, many games that I, I could not watch. But you know what? I'd get on my phone and realize that Duke already won. Well, last night I saw that they already won. But I got out my ESPN app to watch the highlights of all the dunks. They give you like the top five if you click on the ESPN app. And I wanted to see what happened. Now, last night I didn't turn it on ACC Network, okay, to see who won. I already knew who won. Duke won by a blowout. I just turned it on to see how they won. In other words, the victory of Duke had already been established whether they won or not. I'm just reviewing what had already occurred. Well, let me tell you something. That's what you and I get to do every day of our lives. When we're operating under the right authority, Jesus Christ, your job from here to eternity is never to find victory. It's just simply to review victory. It's simply to go back in the Bible and review what Jesus Christ has already accomplished for your life. To review that you are already seated with Jesus in heavenly places now the way he establishes this is by by making a requirement so he he tells us we're still in the orientation verse 11 put on the full armor of god so that you're able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil notice that put on the full armor of god so you can stand firm against the schemes the deception of the enemy you must dress for victory you must dress for success we could say in other words, it's what you put on that determines what victory you experience. Now, what he's going to do now is he's going to give us six pieces of attire. Everybody say six. They're divided into two categories of three. I want to make them very clear. He'll give us one, two, three, division, four, five, six. Craig, how do you know that one, two, three are divided by four, five, six? If you'll look at your passage there in front of you, you'll see he switches verbs. He switches verbs. What do you mean, Craig? In the first three, he uses the verb to be. Everybody say to be. The Bible is translated having, 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 having. You have, you have, you have. The last three, he uses the verb to take. 
So the last three is not having, it's to take up. So the last three is take, take, take. The first three is have, have, have. Any Bible commentator is going to show you this if you study this passage. Now the verb to be indicates a state that you are continuously operating in. The verb to take means something you pick up as the occasion calls for it. It's like a baseball player. Baseball players have uniforms. If you've watched baseball uh, before, you know that the baseball player puts on the uniform and he never takes it off during the whole game, okay? But he takes up the bat when it's his time to go to the plate. When it's time to go on defense and go on the field, he takes up the glove, right? So in other words, in other words, he has the uniform, but he picks up the glove as the occasion requires. He has the shirt, the socks, the, the pants, the cleats, but he picks up the bat when it's time to go to the plate. So the first three, you're never to leave home without. The first three, you got to have at all times in the whole battle. You're never going to take them off. You're going to be clothed in them all the time. But then the, the third, the, the, the next three, four, five, and six, you pick up, he's saying, as the occasion calls for it. So let's discover these six pieces, what they mean, so that when you get dressed tomorrow morning, you get dressed for victory. I want you want to, want to give you a, a promise, better yet, a guarantee. According to the Apostle Paul, listen to me, church, if you will dress for victory, that is, if you will put on the full armor of God, if you don't operate, let me say it this way, independent of these six pieces, then you will no longer be controlled by sin or circumstances that the enemy brings your way. Now, notice what I did not say. I did not say that they won't come. I said that they won't rule you. They won't overpower you. They will not have authority over you if you dress in these six pieces. So the first thing he tells you is you got to put on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. The first thing you've got to put on is the belt of truth. Look what verse 14 says. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Girded your loins with truth. This is the truth belt. Now look, I have on a belt. Now that belt serves two purposes. My outer shirt is not tucked in, but my inner shirt is tucked in. My tank top is tucked in. So what does a belt do? It holds my pants up and it holds my shirt tucked in. Okay? These pants I think will hold up anyways, but it holds my pants up. Holds my shirt down. What is a belt? The belt is a stabilizer. The belt stabilizes. If you're going to experience victory, Paul says, you must be attached to a truth belt. You must have on a truth belt. Now, why is the truth belt so critical? Because Satan is a liar. John 8, says all he does is lie. When he opens his mouth, he speaks a native language called lies. That's all he can do. All he can do is lie. But listen, church, he lies really, really well. He lies so well, it sounds believable. He lies so well, it feels believable. Oh, you better follow me just for a few minutes. He lies so well, it comes across like it could be true. So if you're going to experience the victory you already have in Jesus, you have to have on the truth belt. So here is the question. What is truth? Truth can clearly be defined. It's an absolute standard by which all of reality is measured. Let me give you that definition again. Truth is the absolute standard by which all of reality is measured. 
You know that truth transcends how you feel. Did, did you know that? Truth transcends what you think. Did you know that? And truth transcends the facts you have in front of you. Let me hit those three. First of all, truth transcends how you feel. How many of you have ever been to a scary movie before? You ever watch a scary movie? Uh, that monster comes on the screen right late, you know, when the, the music gets riddly at its high points, climactic moment of the, the movie. And by the way they portray the monster, you scream, you get huddled up next to your husband or boo or bae, whichever one. And when you get up close to them, you cover your eyes, right? Now listen, you know that monster's not real. You're in a movie theater, for goodness sakes. You know that monster's not real, but yet you still close your eyes and scream. Why? You know that thing on the screen is not real, but Hollywood has made it feel so real that they create a reaction even though you know it's not a reality. Let me tell you something about God's truth. It transcends feeling. Even when you feel it to be real, when you know it's not real, it no longer instructs you how to act or react in your life. When you have truth undergirded, when you have truth that is stabilizing you in battle, it doesn't matter how feelings come or go. You're able to stay consistent right in the middle of the battle. This is the belt of truth. This is why Satan, so what Satan tries to do, listen, what Satan tries to do is he tries to get believers to mix up truth and emotion. Just because we feel it, we treat it like it's real, even though God says it's not real. So we act, react to it like it is real, which causes us to get into more anxiety and more worry and more unrest. Why? Because we just simply feel, well, truth transcends feeling. Maybe this message is for me today. Not only does truth transcend feelings, it transcends facts. I know, follow me a minute. Truth transcends facts. Facts that you receive, truth can still transcend. What are you saying, Craig? Yeah. You can have the facts and not the truth. Let's say I got a headache. Woo, I got a headache today, man, killing me. Woo, my head's hurting so bad. It is pounding. I don't know what's going on. I'm leaving here. I'm going straight to Walgreens. I got to get some Excedrin. I got to get some Tylenol Strength PM. Okay, I, I got to do something. I, I got a headache. That's a fact. That's a fact. My head is hurting. I'm going to go get some Tylenol PM. So I leave this church today. I leave our gatherings and go get some Tylenol PM. And, and I go take it. And I wake up a few hours later. My headache won't go away. That's a fact. This happens a few days. I said, I can't take anymore. I go to the doctor. I get a brain scan. Doctor puts me in, CT scan. He, he does a CAT scan on my brain. He finds out, comes back. He's got bad news. Craig, really bad news. You, you got a brain tumor. Now, now, I knew my head was hurting. That's a fact. But I didn't know the cause of the pain, right? So I had facts but I did not have the truth. If you have facts, but you don't know the truth, you won't treat the facts properly. That's why 2 Timothy 3 and 7 says people are ever learning, but never coming into the knowledge of the truth. You can learn facts without, not without understanding God's truth. That's why you can go to college and get a lot of facts and come out with little truth. That's what I've, in fact, experienced most of my life. You go to college, you go to a, a setting where a lot of facts are in, imparted, but you still don't have truth just because you got facts. 
Why? Because truth is an absolute standard by which reality is determined in its original source. And let me tell you what the original source for all truth is. G-O-D, God. He's the original source for all truth. It's God and what God has said. That's why Jesus said, thy word is truth. Because what God says about a thing transcends the facts. What God says about a thing transcends your feelings. And what God says about a thing transcends anything that you think. Listen, church, until you and I start with the truth, we will not be able to defeat the enemy who lives on a lie. Let me give you this. If we are operating in a lie, we've actually given Satan consent to rule us because we're not flowing with the truth. And so many people live there in denial, which is an acrostic for don't even know I'm lying. No starts with a K. I understand that, but it works. Don't even know I'm lying. They're deceived. So if we're operating in a lie, we've actually given Satan consent. Let me give you one last thing about this truth belt, and I'm going to move on. If you're taking notes, truth always exists outside of you. Truth always exists outside of you. What do you mean? Um, people say, I know my truth. Y'all heard that phrase? I know my truth. Well... If your truth isn't the truth, you are operating on a lie. You know what I'm saying? I don't care what your truth is. There's only one truth. What God says is true. Now, I couldn't fully understand this movie, but I love this movie. It's at least the top ten for me. It's this movie called Inception. Anybody seen Inception? Leonardo DiCaprio is already number one. He's a good-looking man. But number two, he's a great actor. I liked him ever since he drowned to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. When Rose let him go. Okay. Which, by the way, if you go Google that image, that plank, he could have got up on top there with her. There's enough space. She just totally kept that thing to herself. But nonetheless, Leo is the man. Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie Inception, he can, if you haven't seen this, he can get into another person's head and find out what they're dreaming. He, in fact, enters into their dreams to find out how they dream. This movie is about a guy who can get into the dreams of other people, so he gets into a dream to discover the thinking of the person whose dream he got into. That's what the whole movie's about. But as the movie goes on, he can not only get into your dream, but he can get into your dream's dream. So he goes into your dream and gets into your dream's dream and looks at your dreams, what he's dreaming, to see what your dream's dream is dreaming, to understand how you and your dream are dreaming. As the movie goes on, it's a crazy movie. He not only can get into your dream, he not only can get into your dream's dream, but he can get into your dream's dream's dream. He does. So now he gets into your dream to see what your dream's dreaming, to see what your dream's dreaming dream is dreaming. By the movie ends, he not only can get into your dream, he not only can get into your dream's dream, he not only can get into your dream's dream's dream, he can get into your dream's 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 dream. He's entered into dreams unto the fourth power, okay? Now, there's only one problem. Because he's entered into all these dreams, he don't know where he is. <laughs> he's lost as a jaybird. He has no idea where he's at. His timing is off. The years he's lived is off. He don't know who he's married to. He don't know what kids he has. You watch this movie, right? He don't know if his kids are one age or another age. He has no idea. What he needed was a totem. A totem. 
So he got a spinning totem, a spinning top. And here's what he did with that. He needed something outside of himself to tell himself what he was living was really reality or lie. Was really a reality or in the dream. You already know where I'm going with this. In a dream state. He needed something that was outside of his subjective experience that would communicate to him what he was really in at that time. So he was a spinning top. Before he went into the dream, he'd take that totem and he'd spin it before he entered into the dream state. And when he did, he turned the top and it spins until it wobbles and falls over. But when he spins the pen in the dream, it never falls over. So the way he knew he was in reality or in a dream world was by his totem. For you to know whether you are making a right decision or a wrong decision, for you to know whether you're making a God decision or a man decision, for you to know whether you're making a heavenly decision or a hellish decision, you need something outside of you to tell you whether the you you are in right now is reality or it's not because your enemy can make a dream seem real. We had one happen this week. He can make dreams that you're going through seem like it's really the end of a situation, the end of whatever you're facing, and God's totem is his holy word. God's totem is his objective standard by which all reality is measured. And this totem transcends what you feel. This totem transcends facts, and this totem transcends even what you think. Here's the totem, God's word. He goes on to say, number two, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now notice this one. This is interesting, breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness, I want to give you a definition really quick, can be defined as that standard which God requires that pleases him. It's the standard God requires that pleases him. It's the ability to stand before God free from fear, guilt, condemnation, fully accepted, loved, and, and full of God's grace. I'm, I'm in a position of acceptance before the Father. That's through, of course, Jesus Christ. It's the standard that God requires that pleases him. This, by the way, is vitally connected with truth. Look, for a Roman soldier, the breastplate could not be on unless the belt of truth was vitally connected to it. Now, you need to follow this a minute. The belt of truth has to precede, then becomes the righteous or the breastplate of righteousness. Truth gives you that standard. Righteousness is operating in light of that standard. So now you know you're doing the right thing because you're connected to the belt. The breastplate for the Roman soldier was connected to the belt so he knew the right thing to do he knew the right decision to make why because satan operates on wrongness because he's a liar he operates on lies he consistently lies why is it so important to have the breastplate of righteousness on because we're made up of three parts if you're in school uh, if you're in uh, growth phases you know this we're made up of body we're made up of soul we're made up of spirit your body gives you the ability to communicate with the physical realm if i didn't have a body i could not talk to you today your your uh, soul soul gives you the ability to communicate to yourself. Your soul, mind, will, and emotions is self-knowledge. Your spirit gives you the ability to communicate to God, to communicate to the, the Father in heaven. The spirit gives that. Well, everyone, because of sin, has their soul distorted. We've actually gone into a fun house and your mirror makes you look tall or makes you look short or makes you look wide or makes you look fat. We've all been distorted. Our reality has been distorted by sin. In other words, you can't trust you. Okay, you can't trust you. Why? Because we've all been affected by sin, which has distorted our real reality, which is why our breastplate of righteousness has to be connected into the belt of truth. Now, listen, your problem is not just your problem. Follow me a minute. 
Your problem is not just your problem. I'm talking about your problem of sin and what you're dealing with is not just your problem. Follow me. Whatever your problem is has been exacerbated, not king exasperated. Exacerbated means made worse. Your problem has been exacerbated. It's been made worse. Why? It's been made worse by the absence or presence of demonic influence. Now, you need to lean in and listen just for a moment. Your problem has been made worse by demonic influence. You wrestle against flesh and blood, and you wrestle against what? Demonic forces. You wrestle against powers in the heavenly places. If you have wrongness in your soul, that is to say you're not walking in righteousness. Compare that to garbage. If you got garbage in your house and you leave the garbage long enough, you got more than one problem. You ain't just got a garbage, you got a little bit of a smell, and then when you have a garbage in your house long enough, you invite uninvited guests. They are called ants, they are called roaches. They are called insects. And the longer the, 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 the uh, uh, garbage stays in the house, then you invite more unwanted guests, right? And you know, not, nobody I've ever walked into their house and said to all the ants outside, would you please come on in here and just make your home right inside my garbage can? Come on, cockroaches. I want you to, these are uninvited guests. So the fact that the garbage is there is in fact an invitation. Now you got two problems. You got the garbage that's there and the guests that it invited. When there is wrongness in your life, that is when there's habitual sin in your life, the problem is not just the wrongness you're going through. It's also the demonic friends that have been invited by the wrongness. This is the reason why people have addictions and they're not able to kick the addiction. It's not just getting out of the addiction altogether. It's also the demonic infestation and the demonic influence that's coming on apart or being invited to the wrongness in your soul. Demons are invited to make the garbage worse. Demons are invited to make the situation worse. This is the reason rightness this is the reason righteousness is so critical. And in the same way you clean the house to get rid of all the ants and roaches, you have to clean the life in order to get rid of the demons. I'm not saying believers are demon-possessed. I did not say that. But demons are absolutely invited and absolutely oppressed when we give open doors through sin in our life. Absolutely. He says the breastplate. What, what does the breastplate cover up? Your your heart. What does your heart do? Your heart pumps blood to give the rest of you life. There must be rightness in the heart for the rest of you to experience the life of God. God wants to pump life into the rest of you, but the pump won't work if wrongness is in control because demons are calling the shots. I can't camp out there, but I wish I could. Because that's that, that is unbelievably important and critical for our life and our warfare. Number three, having the shoes of peace. So we got the belt of truth. We got the breastplate of righteousness. Let's go to the shoes of peace. Notice he says it's the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now quick, quickly. There's peace with God and there's peace of God. Two peace the scripture speaks of. Peace with God is your righteous standing with God based on faith. I'm not talking about peace with God. Why? Because these are believers. Believers don't need to be told about peace with God in the sense that they need it. They have already are at peace with God because of the faith they have, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So this is not peace with God. This is not enemies in the minds of Christ, but now you've been made friends. No, this is peace of God. This is the peace of 
of God on my feet. This is the peace of God due to the gospel of peace that I have partaken of. The peace of God comes from the breastplate of righteousness because you're plugged into the belt of truth. Don't miss that. The peace of God comes from the breastplate of righteousness because you're plugged into the belt of truth. That is that if you're operating on truth, therefore making right decisions, God will confirm your direction of life. That's your feet. That's your shoes by his peace. If you want his peace, you got to be connected to the truth, which causes you to make right decisions. And in right decisions, God puts his peace on your direction. Well, I ain't got no peace. Well, do you have rightness of heart and are you connected to the belt of truth? The peace of God. Now that raises a question. What is peace? Many, many years ago, a painter, two painters were asked to paint a picture of peace. And they had two large canvases. The first painter grabs his tools, his canvas, and he begins to write. And he begins to write and begins to create this beautiful artwork. And the first thing he does, he gives this big landscape. There's a horizon. The sun's coming up over the horizon. And there's the waters that are in front of it that are very still. There's no white caps. It's a beautiful, serenic picture. Very scenic. The water's still. There's a sheep on the side of the pasture that the shepherd is calmly enabling them to eat the grass. And it's just calm. And he put in big letters at the top of his picture, he put the word peace. But that's not how Jesus defines peace. The second painter got a big canvas. He took his paintbrush. He painted a dark landscape. There was lightning that was coming down out of the sky. Water was billowing off the rocks. Not only from the rain, but there was also a huge waterfall. The water was being actually pushed even back up in the air because the wind was so strong. It was billowing everywhere. It was chaotic. Except in the very middle of the picture, there was a big rock. And under that rock was a bird, a small, tiny bird that was sitting there under the rock. And there were musical notes coming up out of the beak of that bird because that bird was singing. And then he put right over the top of his picture, P-E-A-C-E. See, the only way you know you have the peace of God is when you're not supposed to have it. That's why he said there is the peace of God that transcends all understanding. What does that mean? Because I don't understand in light of what I'm going through why I still got peace. I don't understand in light of what's happening all around me why I still got peace. Come on, somebody. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you'll have tribulation. That means it's not peace with no problems. Oh, you can might as well throw the first picture out of the water. It's peace in spite of the problems. In light, in spite of what you're going through, why are you still able to sleep? In light of what you're going through, why are you not drinking alcohol? In light of what you're going through, why are you not popping pills like you used to? In light of what you're going through in your family's face, why have you not lost your mind? Why are you still able to lay your head on your pillow at night? Why? Because God gives a sure-footed peace. When I'm connected to the belt of truth and I have rightness in my heart, God confirms my steps with his peace.
peace. It's peace that transcends all understanding. That means you have no understanding of why you got peace in the midst of what you're going through. But you got it. That's the peace of God. That's the peace he declares that is ours in spiritual warfare. That is the biblical understanding of peace. And it comes from the gospel. He said the good news of the relationship with Jesus Christ allows you to be sure-footed, to move through your life with calm in spite of a turbulence. I'm going to take seven minutes and finish out these last three. He then switches verbs and he says, take up the shield of faith. Verse 16. Take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He introduces into a shield. Now a shield is moving. Everybody say mobile. You can move a shield wherever you want. It's called the shield's called faith. What is faith? Here we go. Like truth, faith is not a feeling. In other words, you can feel f- no feeling of faith and be full of faith. And the converse is true. You can, you can have no feeling of faith, be full of faith, right? And you can feel full of faith and be faithless. Because faith is not a feeling. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Listen, faith is acting like it is so, even when it's not so, in order that it might be so, just because God said so. That's faith. That's faith. It's acting like God said what he said is truth, and I'm going to move towards that truth. That's what faith is. You measure faith by the movement of your feet. Did you hear me? You don't measure faith by a mental ascent that I trust God. No, no, no. You measure faith by the movement of your feet. You measure faith because faith without works is it's useless. Faith is measured by movement. That's why it's called walking by faith. It ain't called standing because you can tell when you're doing it. Faith is tied to an action. No matter how faithless you feel, if your faith or your feet are not moving in the direction of the faith act that you're declaring, then you don't have faith regardless of the emotion you have at that moment. Did you hear what I said? If your feet are not moving, you have emotion. You do not have faith. Can I speak to some church planners a minute? When I know and believe by faith that God has called me, okay, it's not simply trusting, believing, mental ascent. It means that right now my feet begin to move in faith towards the action or faith action God's asking me to take. It's when my feet start moving that I begin to move with the shield of faith. This is something mobile. This is not setting back. This is moving by faith. You measure faith by the movement of your feet. That's why it's called the the walk of faith. If the feet are not moving, there is no faith. Can I say? again. If the feet are not moving, there is no faith. That's why verse 16, he says, you, you have to have this shield of faith. Listen, everything God wanted to, God wanted somebody to do something in scripture, he required faith because faith is an action. Go to Hebrews 11. I don't have time to go there. The Bible says who the person was, but then it says by faith, they did it. By faith, Abel. By faith, Moses. Not stood, not sat, not believed. They did something. By faith, uh, David. Your feet must move in light of what God said. That's faith. They're moving. But then he goes on and says, you're able to, to extinguish all the flaming arrows. Everybody fl- flaming arrow. He introduces arrows, but a certain kind of arrow. It's a flaming arrow. This is an arrow that's been set on fire. Now, why wouldn't he just say arrows? I shoot a lot of deer with arrows. Arrows can kill. Why wouldn't he just say 
the, the arrows coming at you are just arrows. Let me tell you something. Don't miss this. Because the arrows coming at you aren't just arrows. They're flaming arrows. You know what that means? How many of you ever saw those cowboy and Indian movies? You ever see those old cowboy and Indian movies? The Indians attack the wagon train because the Indians have arrows and, and they don't have guns. What they do is the wagons all back up, rear into one another, and then the Indians, woo! and then they start going around in circles, right? And they start circling the wagon trail. So the cowboys are there ready with their guns and the Indians are pulling back and shooting, fire, shooting, uh, shooting arrows into the camp, into the cowboys, right? But, but one of them, not all of them, one of them would get smart. One of them would be called the, the uh, flaming arrow and the Indian would take it down in some oil. Then he'd light it on fire and he wouldn't, you say, why did he light it on fire? To shoot somebody, make them on fire? No, no, he didn't do that. He took it and he, he, he pulled it back and he shot the flaming arrow right into the canopy of the wagon because in the canopy, of the wagon, then the wagon would catch on fire. The fiery dart was not to, to shoot the cowboy. The Indians knew that the cowboys can't fight Indians and fire at the same time. You can't fight your enemy and a distraction at the same You understand what I'm saying? You, you can't fight an enemy and distractions at the same time. So he said the shield of faith is able to take up to keep you away from the distractions that cause you to not be focused or preoccupied on the wrong thing, which is the battle that's around you. So he, he says you, you, you have to wage war against the Indians. And if you walk in faith, it will put out Satan's attempt to distract you from where God is trying to take you in your shoes that are lived out with peace and gospel because you're walking in rightness of heart connected to the belt of Almighty God and His truth. This is what He says. Now, now we're walking. Now I'm not distracted left and right, right? Now, I mean, I feel God's anointing in this room this morning. I feel His and sense His love and His pleasure. It's that when, when we begin to walk in light of His gospel, God begins to bring confirmation. Now this walk of faith begins to, to, to not make you have to respond to every distraction that comes your way. Why? Because you're out to wage war against the enemy, wage war against the demons. So God, God must detect some movement for us. Look at number five in verse 17. He then says, take the helmet of salvation. Everybody say helmet. He's not telling you to get saved. You're already saved. These are already saints. Read chapter one, verse three. Why do you put your helmet on? In football, you put your helmet on to protect your head because inside your head, your brain. And if your brain's rattled, you won't think right. Anybody ever watch the show Beverly Hills? Beverly Hill, uh, uh, Hillbilly Lives and Beverly Hills? You ever, ever watch that? When, remember with the, what's so crazy about that show? It's some of you younger people, you won't understand this show, but Beverly Hillbillies. When I was a kid, I used to watch that. And what happened was one of them, long before he ever went out and hunted, owned some property, and, and he became a millionaire from the time that he owned the property, but he didn't know what was at his disposal. He didn't know what he could really utilize yet. And these folks, Beverly Hillbillies was about some folks who were millionaires who try to act like they're, they're rich. Now, if you ever get a hillbilly to try to act like they're rich, that's a funny thing. And so they move into Beverly Hills. Ellie Mae, y'all remember Ellie Mae? Remember Grandma? And you're trying to get them to act like they're millionaires when they ain't millionaires. They're trying, the whole movie, the whole show, they're acting out of their old way of thinking, but they're in their new location. They're, they're acting out of the old way that they used to live, but in a new place. Let me tell you something. All of God's children are raised to a new location in heavenly places, but a lot of us bring our earthly thinking 
to it. We're in a location that is operating from an old frame of reference. And God says, you can't do that. You got to operate in the new location with the new frame of reference in light of what God has done. When a scuba diver goes into the water, he is in foreign territory. He can't survive down in the water unless he does something to, to make himself survive. He can't survive in the water on his own. He's not of this world, right? He's in this world. He's not in that world. That's the world of fish. So before he gets in the water, what does he do? Y'all know what he does. He gets an oxygen tank. In other words, he brings what he essentially needs from his world into the foreign world so that he can make it in the foreign world or else the foreign world will kill him. What God expects us to be in this foreign world, but drawing from the substance of that heavenly location. And, and if you ever bring a fish up out of the water, they're flopping, they're jerking, they're going all around the boat. Why? Because they don't belong there. But listen, I see me too many Christians that are flopping, jerking, flailing, doing all. Why? Because they've left their oxygen tank in their heavenly location. They're trying to operate out of their own old thinking. That's the helmet of salvation. And then he finally says in number six, take up the sword of the spirit. Come on, band. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Which is the word of God. This, by the way, is the only offensive weapon you're given in all six. And it's actually the only one you need. You only need one offensive weapon. Everybody say this. Say sword of the spirit. You know what that means? It's the sword that you use. It's the sword that the spirit uses. The sword of the spirit. The spirit uses a sword. The spirit uses or welds a sword. What is that sword? It's called the word of God. Now there's two words for sword. There's a long sword that Zara would have used. And then there's a short sword that's called a dagger. Everybody say dagger. It's a short dagger. It's, it's used in up close fighting. The one he uses here is dagger. You know why he uses dagger? It's because this is when Satan's all up in your grill. Anybody heard Satan of all up in your grill, all up close? You, you don't even need no long sword. You just need a dagger. When hell is attacking you up close, it's the sword of the spirit. The word for word is interesting. There's three words in Greek for word. The first one's graphe. You know what graphe means? Graphe refers to the book called the Bible. This is graphe. First, the book called the Bible. There's a second word for, for word in Greek. It's called logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. That logos means the content of what is here, what is written, and its meaning. So look, you got the graphe, the Bible. You got the content of what is written. That's the logos. But then you got a third word for word. Y'all know it's called rhema. It means utterance or that which is declared. So you got graphe, what's written. You got the logos, the content of what's written and what it means. And then you got the rhema, which is the declaration of the content and what it means. Are you following me here? When you are in a spiritual battle, you don't just hold up the Bible and go like this. That's not what he's saying here. This is not what happens. You don't do that. When you're in a spiritual battle, you don't just hold up the content. In other words, you can't just have a Bible study to understand what it means. No, no, no. He says at some point, the content of what's written and its meanings got to get on your lips and you got to start declaring that this is the word of God. This is the truth of God over my 
situation. This is the rhema of God. And this is when the sword of the Spirit begins to cut away enemies. This is when the sword of the Spirit begins to cut off of bondage and addiction and difficulties and challenges that we face. We have to declare it. I want to end by telling you, you need to have a Bible study with the devil this week. What are you saying, Craig? Are you taking that a little too far? No, I'm not. You want, you want proof? Jesus had a Bible study with the devil. He was out in the wilderness being tempted, and he was real hungry after 40 days. And Satan said, hey, didn't God say that you should, uh, you should turn these stones to come into bread? And Jesus said, mm, bread. And he Googled bread real quick, and he got to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone. So he copied and pasted it, put it in Word, printed off the document. He got it off the printer, and he said, no, God has said, man shall not live by bread alone. Well, then the enemy comes again. He took him up to this high point. He said, why don't you bow down and worship me? I'll give you the kings of the earth. He's, he said, worship. He typed in worship in Google. He got a verse. It said, you should worship the Lord your God only and fear him only. And then he took that to Satan and declared to him. And, and, and then over and over, the, the temptation, he said, take yourself up to the high point, cast yourself off. He said, you will, you will, uh, God will cause you not to dash your foot against a stone. He Googles stone. It comes back. He prints it off and he says, no, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In other words, you should not make God have to show up in a miracle based off of your current ignorance and evidently God likes baseball because after three strikes Satan was out you want to put the enemy in the dugout start getting God's word and start declaring God's word over whatever situation and battle you're facing. Get it on your lips and declare it. Satan is allergic to Scripture. He's not allergic to your ideas. He's not allergic to your thinking. He's allergic to the Scripture. Learn how to use the Scripture. You're fighting from victory. Victory has been legally won. You must literally grab it. You must literally grab it. You must literally grab it. I'm going to ask the, the water baptism candidates, just go ahead and prepare if you haven't done so, if you have and you're awesome, you're ready to go, we're going to move. Look at me, church. There was a man's name. His name was Thomas Anderson. The kids are going to join us because this is a great celebration. There's a man named Thomas Anderson. Thomas Anderson was a, uh, he was a part-time computer programmer. He was a computer hacker. And he found out one day while he was at work that he could, uh, he could enter into a computer-generated world called the Matrix. Have you ever seen Matrix 1, 2, and 3? I now have seen those. And you went into a computer-generated world, but in this computer-generated world, he found out he had power that he didn't have in his old ordinary life. He had power. And he had a lovely lady there who was a girlfriend, Bobby, named Trinity. He found himself in a new community called Zion. And he had powers. He had powers. So he goes into that computer-generated world where he is just powerful. And Morpheus comes to him. And Morpheus has two pills in his hand. He says, uh, his new name. He said, uh, I've got a blue pill here for you and a red pill. He said, if you take this blue pill. His name was Neo, his new name in the generator world. He said, you take this blue pill. He said, uh, you can go back right now to your old, ordinary life, your old, ordinary desk, live in your old, ordinary ways, and we can forget about this and just pretend like it was a dream. But he said, if you take this red pill, Neo, you're in for the ride of your life. And it's going to be difficult because there's a guy named Mr. Smith. 
Mr. Smith's got a bunch of little stunt bodies who are doubles that will fight you and try to keep you from experiencing this world. But he said, you'll be in for the ride of your life. So here's what I do. At the end of this day, I stand before you with two pills. You can take the blue pill and go back to your old, ordinary, defeated, busted, disgusted, spiritually impotent, weak, having no ability to fight, falling down on your face, moment, moment after moment after moment. You can go back and live that defeated life, or you can take the red pill. You can take the sword of the Spirit, and you are in for the ride of your life. You can begin to move and wage war on the forces of darkness because you're dressed for victory in Jesus Christ. You're dressed for victory. Father, I thank you. Again, thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.